You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show for Star Trek here on TFM. And I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is all the time these days, which is fantastic, in his, well, resplendent disco t-shirt, Casey Pettit. Yeah, and we're not even talking disco today, but you might not no, be no. here. No, <laughs> no. You know, and I, I figured you were wearing that because, you know, um, singer and disco legend Olivia Newton-John just passed away. And so I appreciate, you know, uh, you you're doing that for her. So I, I had no idea we were such a big fan of disco you know, in I, general. It's not bad. But yes. <laughs> Thanks for the cover there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well... Uh, Casey, this is, um, you know, episode 350 of Literary Treks, which is insane because this November I will have been podcasting for 10 years and this was the first show that I was ever on. Oh, this was actually, I think, one of the first podcasts I found because I was like, there's got to be a Star Trek books podcast out there. I think I started listening to mission log and then i was like i need something on the books because nice. i like the books and then uh found found literary treks and trek fm and all the glory that comes with it nice and and as they would say the rest was history uh well i'm i'm really actually interested uh in asking you a question before we kind of get rolling which is you know 350 episodes and and the fact that you had been a listener for so long what had been you know, some of the the episodes that you really enjoyed or the books that we had covered or, of course, Bruce and Dan had covered uh, all those years. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the – I don't know that I could narrow it down to specific um, books or anything like that, but um, cause there's so many that have been covered that I haven't even read, but I've always enjoyed yeah. listening to them anyway. <laughs> Um, I think my favorite aspect of the show over all this time is really hearing from the authors. Uh, I love listening to the hosts talk about the books and the comics and everything, but getting a chance to uh, hear from the authors themselves, especially you know when you find out that the authors are listeners as well, some of them. So that's you know that's been fun. Um, but just kind of that um, the intimate look, I guess. At, you know, at, at what they're writing, their passions behind it, uh, and the fact that these people are fans too, especially, you know, the recent authors that are, uh, that have been on the show and that have been writing recently. These are people who love Star Trek and, 
love to talk about it and love to tell their own stories. And so, you know, getting that um, has been a, a real pleasure to be able to listen to, um, you know, and, and kind of get to know these authors a little bit, you know, vicariously through the podcast. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, getting getting to hear about the books as they come out to um, especially since they're spaced out a little bit more than they used to be, you know, we're not getting two or three a month anymore. So, um, you know, we can kind of catch up on, on those ones, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think going through, since I can't think of any specific books that I've liked, you know, that we've, that, uh, either we've talked about or the other hosts have talked about going through all those 24th century adventures, like the post Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. you know, into the Typhon Pact, all of those things. That was a super fun trip to listen to, you know, all those various shows um, and hear about, you know, how many years was that worth of, you know, of novels, 20 years of, of novels that were written, especially the the Coda books to, to wrap mm-hmm. them all up. So, you know. Getting that long serialized story in the novels was a, a lot of fun, a lot of fun to listen to people's thoughts on those. It's uh, it's interesting uh, because you know, obviously, just having been on the podcast, but also being you know a uh, behind the scenes. You know, when I was not hosting uh, the show and I was doing the editing for a lot of it. Uh, for a lot of the time, you know, getting to hear everything. I, I'm right there with you. I mean, even just being on the show, the the most fun has always been talking to the authors. And getting to have the opportunity to talk about their work with them was, was always a joy. Uh, getting to know them, too, has been so much fun. Uh, and, of course, uh, appreciate so many of them who are still writing the books coming on as well. You know, I, I know it's been a rough year in the sense we haven't had a ton of those, but we finally have Una's book coming out there in September. Uh, we got David Mack's book coming out in December and in February, John Jackson Miller's new book as well. So it, we've still got some great books that yeah. are coming, and, and I know they've got more coming down the line as well next year. So that's all very exciting. And so, yeah, a huge thank you just to the authors if you happen to be listening Um we appreciate you, you know, continuing to give us all your time uh, to talk about these books. It's been a joy, and it's definitely been uh, my joy in doing this show for so long. And before we uh, dive into our news item here, we're going to review a comic. Uh, before that happens, uh, thank you so much for joining us for 350 episodes, and who knows how much more we've got coming for you. You just never know. Um we also would like you to make sure that you're subscribed wherever you're listening. Uh, that means you'll get the show here as soon as it drops. And we'd really appreciate it if you're on a platform that lets you review or rate uh, the show. Please do that to help other people find the show. Of course, you can share us and follow us there at Trek FM on Twitter, uh, as well as Instagram. And of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got the listeners only discussion group housed there as well that you could find called the Babel Conference. You could talk to listeners from all over the world. Trek.fm, where you can see all of the shows we're doing here on the network. And you can go to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek fm where you can become part of our team 
Uh, and you can be an associate producer of a show like Casey Pettit or Greg Rosier. We really appreciate them continuing to support the network. Uh, it's definitely been lean uh, over the last few years. Is uh, it's We've been hit hard just like everybody else. So uh, if you want to keep Literary Treks going for 350 more episodes, the best way to do that is go to patreon.com slash trekfm. So, Casey... We do have one big news item, and that's the review uh, we got here of Mirror War 7. And I would say, like the last issue, we are finally starting to tell a story. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this one is by far my favorite of the series so far. It's It's a high bar. It's a high bar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I feel like this is what we've been wanting. You know, it's got action. It's you know the the artistry has always been pretty good in this in this comic series. But um, you know, we got lots and lots of ships. They finally got all their ships built. But we also have a Cardassian fleet that shows up, and I mean, lots of action, intrigue, uh, deception. Uh, you know, people stabbing each other in the back or getting disintegrated or whatever. I mean, it's got everything you'd want from a mirror universe story and uh you know issue seven uh, it's about time and you know it ends with to be concluded which means there's only one more episode or one more issue coming um which is fine i'm ready for it to be over but i'm glad we're hopefully going to be ending this one with a bang I think, you know, it's really interesting, like you said, this has all been building to Picard working to ravage the enemies of the Terran Empire, which has been, of course, completely decimated for the most part, and working very diligently, trying to resurrect itself, which I I find really, really interesting. And it's, it's one of those things where I... Wished that the entire series had been this interesting because like you said, and, and, you know, here in the review, we're not going to go super in depth because I think this is actually an issue that's worth people reading because this is where everything just kind of hits the fan. And like you said, you've got intrigue, backstabbing, uh, you know, secret plots, people being disintegrated, uh, people showing up that you thought might have been here the whole time, which was great. I mean, there's all this stuff that's happening, and it's interesting to me and weird to me that in issue seven, the best stuff happens, and then the next issue is the last issue. And so at least I would say, you know, so far the penultimate issue, like you said, was the best issue so far, and hopefully we just go out with a bang. Yeah, and I mean... I don't even feel like if if they didn't even wrap up any hanging threads in this one, which I'm not even really sure what all there is, but um, I'd be okay with that. You know, like it, again, as long as it kind of followed the same, you know, the same format, you've got characters mm-hmm. that we know and love, you know, smiley O'Brien shows up, you know, we just, um, yeah, the only thing I guess I would say that I I would want to see in the next one is maybe more either tie in or just have them show up at Deep Space or at at uh, Terraknor. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be fun to kind of tie them together. We I feel like we've gotten mm-hmm. teased by seeing Cisco and now Smiley. I I think seeing 
seeing some action around Terok Nora would be kind of fun. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that would be awesome. Uh, and so, well, I, I think we both would say this is definitely an issue to pick up. And, and in all honesty, you don't really know uh, how much of the rest of the series you need to read. You could pick this one up, I think, and enjoy it. Uh, and hopefully issue eight will also be a winner. Uh, but Casey, for th- episode 350, we decided we were going to go and review and talk about probably one of the most well-loved books in all of Star Trek books, uh, a hardcover as well. And we are going to talk about Federation. So what do you say we uh, jump into the Guardian of Forever and check out Federation? I'll see you in the past or in the future or the far future. Or... I'll see you soon. I'm sure it's fine. So, Casey, this is quite a monumental work here by Judith and Garfield Reef Stevens. Um, this book takes so much of Star Trek history uh, and weaves it together in a way that, like, this to me is the proto Christopher L. Bennett story uh, because of the way they work with so much Star Trek history uh, from course the original series to what we know pre-original series of like the 22nd century and Cochrane as well as next generation history as well and putting that all together in a format that you know this book came out right as generations was coming out and this was almost a a prelude to that in the sense that um a previous adventure where Kirk and Picard almost meet one another. And then of course in generations they actually meet one another. And so but I would say this story to me is kind of everything you wanted from generations that generations maybe wasn't. Mm, that's an interesting way to put it and I I could totally agree with that. In fact, I could even see this and then Generations or some some sort of duology of movies um, putting together, you know, the stories. I, you know, the you, you mentioned Christopher L. Bennett, and that's something I hadn't even thought of, but um, he really did kind of pick up the mantle almost from Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, who were kind of they're pretty big in the Star Trek world. They had you know bigger novels they wrote the millennium trilogy for deep space nine which was epic i guess um and then they uh you know they even worked on enterprise later on after this so they they knew their star trek lore and um really brought that to bear here and i felt like did a really good job of um timeline setting as far as like you you always knew where you were like they did a really good job of i mean this the the original series parts were set right after uh journey to babel or during journey to babel i guess um Mm -hmm. yeah right after the events that we see in the episode yes uh, yes. because you know in the episode they never actually get to babel uh so yeah and then what is, is next generation it's right after right after uh, sarek i think yes yes Mm mm-hmm and so, I mean, like, 
you know, even the stuff with Cochrane, I mean, you kind of just always knew where, where it was taking place. And they were always referring back to mm-hmm. things that had happened, uh, before. And I, I didn't ever notice any kind of, you know, little slip ups where they say something that didn't happen until a later episode. I mean, it was, it was very well mm-hmm. placed in there. And I felt like where they placed in the timeline, especially for the next generation scenes that were, um, after the episode Sarek, after Picard's mind meld with Sarek, all played into the story. And I kind of wondered throughout the book how that yes. was all going to play in, but they did a good job of wrapping it all up and making it kind of make sense why Picard had to have had that mind meld with mm-hmm. Sarek before the yeah. events of the story. So just overall, like just, you know, these were the right authors for this book. They, and I just felt like they did a good job there um, mm-hmm. with all the time stuff. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, the, the fact that we spend so much time in these different times, you know, and, and I think what, what really makes this work is the way in which they use Cochrane and that storyline. And they, create a storyline for Cochran, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and doesn't, I don't think quite fit with what you get in first contact and in even enterprise. Um, because his creation of warp technology happens before world war three has happened. And I thought Put it this way, I thought their work with Cochrane made him an even more substantial character in the history of Star Trek than what we get in First Contact, which he's still substantial and really important because he not only helps them create Warp Drive, which brings the Vulcans in, uh, but he then helps lay the groundwork for creating uh, the Warp 5 engine with, you know, uh, Henry Archer. And I thought, you know, that all that's great, but here... I mean, he's pivotal in the sense that he legitimately helps save humanity from annihilation because of the way in which he sets up these early colonies for Earth. So it helps humanity survive World War III, but it also helps people be away from Earth so they don't get sucked into the things that actually caused World War III in the first place. And I think... I was only about halfway through the book when I texted you and I was like, I think this fits okay with first contact. And you were like, "Mm, I don't think so. And as I got through the book, I kind of understood more why I think, you know, for my own headcanon, there, there are definitely some disconnects. Um, You know, they, I feel like in first contact pretty clearly made it, if they didn't say it outright, they made it seem like world war three just ended uh, and they were kind of in that post-atomic horror um, kind mm-hmm. of time, um, but yeah, I thought I thought that this was just a more fulfilling life for Cochrane. You know, you can still kind of headcanon that in this book, when he created Warp, he did it for the money, like he said in First Contact. But then after he met the Vulcans and started working with it, he had you know, a change of heart and really wanted, he didn't want the money at all. He just wanted to, to better humanity. Um, it feels, it feels more like Cochrane 
in this book is the father of the Star Trek universe, like in-universe father of Star Trek. You know, his creation of Warp essentially designed that insignia that they wear on the Enterprise and, um, you know, his, his, his passion for making, making humanity better. And, and like you said, setting up colonies on other planets that don't have to kind of witness the horror that's going on back on earth and in with the war and then the, um, the optimum movement and, and other kind of, you know, things that we saw like in, uh, encounter at far point when we first met Q, the guys with the handguns mm-hmm. and, or the hand, what do they call those arm machine guns, whatever they are. Yeah. There's a, I'm trying to remember there is a name for them. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what they call them, yeah. uh, in the book. Um, so forgive us, yeah. but, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they refer to the people, as zombies and and talk about their mm-hmm. inhaler tubes from their self medication kits yep. and um you know so like they're t- they're the authors are taking that imagery that we saw in next generation and putting that in here and and really kind of spelling out what this horrible time in human history looked like and why people would want to move past that and you know Cochrane's part of that um you know, he doesn't, he's, he's, he kind of has more foresight, I guess, than, uh, uh, was it Oppenheimer in the Manhattan project? Yeah. Who, yeah. You know, and Einstein and all of them, like he, he kind of saw that there could be destructive purposes used, but also, you know, mm-hmm. knew that he, he didn't yeah. want it to go there, but also just that, you know, what, what the villain in this book wanted wasn't even possible anyway, but, you know, he, he wanted, he wanted his creation to be used for good and to connect with other worlds out there. And that just, it, I, I feel like you couldn't get more Star Trek than that. See, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, again, with this, this idea of making Cochrane this, this ultra pivotal person in Star Trek history, in many ways, I think what this book does is it puts them on the same pedestal that you put Kirk and Picard mm-hmm. on, right? Especially at this time, right? Uh, and then, you know, people would go on to put, like, Cisco and, uh, you know, um, Janeway and Archer. and You know, it's just... Not only is he the linchpin in making sure that Earth survives, but he is the one responsible for these other earth colonies, which would then of course become parts of the Federation later on. But he's also the person who helps earth connect with Vulcanians, uh, the, the term for them then. And they seem to be in a completely different place than when we meet them in, you know, of course, first contact, which they don't seem to be that much ahead of the humans when it comes to space travel which is really interesting. And, you know, they don't seem to be these kind of like almost omnipresent type figures that we get in, um, you know, especially Enterprise. And so to me, that that was also fascinating that, yes, that he helps save humanity, creates these colonies, he's created Warp Drive, but he also connects humanity with 
the first major alien species that will, of course, lead to the founding of the Federation. Uh, and so the the work here that they put in to crafting this part of the story to me was just absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, the, the level of detail that, I mean, all of Cochrane's story was at, at this point, since this was before First Contact, um, they gleaned from just mentions of Cochrane throughout Star Trek and then the one episode that he shows up in in the original series called Metamorphosis. Um, you know, the fact that he disappeared you know, comes into play here and why he disappeared and how he disappeared and where he went, you know, and and then everything, you know, between creating warp drive and that we knew that he lived on one of the colonies before he disappeared, but having this whole life told about him in this book, you know, Star Trek books always have their original characters in them or, you know, the secondary characters where the authors take and kind of extrapolate, um, this one I feel like they've done to the nth degree um, with such an important character in Star Trek and then, um, you know, an important part of the history that, I mean, we, I feel like we sh- I'm surprised we've never gotten more Star Trek novel content in this time period, like, you know, before mm-hmm. Enterprise, um, you know, we've, we had uh, – Greg Cox's con books, which were awesome, but then we've literally got from there to Enterprise and, you know, before we have, have many stories. And so, so getting some of that, getting the Vulcans or the Vulcanians fleshed out here more, it was fun. And I almost wish we would have seen these Vulcans in Enterprise to see ones that are a little bit more on par with where we're at, you know, a little bit further ahead, but different science. You know, they say that, um, Cochrane's warp theories, you know, Vulcans had faster than light technology, but not like actual warp speed. And so they actually worked together with Cochrane and with, you know, humans to further that science even more. And we, we didn't have to have fights with Vulcans or snarky Vulcans. Right. What's interesting is there's, I think there's a validity to doing both sides, you know, one is because I think it does, you know, with what you do with Enterprise, you give yourself somewhere to go with the the Vulcans in the sense that you get to see them in a different light and the way in which their species evolved, um, very interestingly, I think this, you know, the way in which the Reef Stevens put this is is fascinating though and could have been fleshed out and and I think made for just as much of an interesting story as what you get in Enterprise. So it, it's just one of those things you can see that you can go different ways. Um and what so you know Cochrane ends up living all the way till you know the next generation time period where he's pulled out of the wormhole finally with the companion. And, you know, they end up dying in the 24th century. And so having him be able to span and actually be the one who becomes the link between all of these people, you know, between Kirk and Picard and be the one who's actually got to meet them both before they both got to meet each other. How did that end up working for you as is kind of like his final story 
once they got to the 24th century, I that's when I really had to put anything I thought about First Contact, the film, aside and kind of say, this is a different story. And, and I was fine with it, actually. Like, I mean, and it, it would have almost been interesting to have that, you know, to have them meet Picard and, you know, our 24th century crew and then have First Contact knowing that they'd met Cochrane before, but couldn't really say anything because it's a younger Cochrane, you know, from a different era. So it almost still could work, except for the fact that we never saw our characters in first contact say, Oh yeah. Remember he died on our ship. <laughs> but I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was uh, a really beautiful way to end Cochrane and the companion story. Um, when they went back to their little planetoid and found out that it had been destroyed because the companion essentially had like a symbiotic mm-hmm. relationship with it. It's actually pretty heartbreaking knowing, Oh, you know, okay. So she can't go back there. She's dying. And, and now she's actually going to die. And Cochran basically saying it's okay. It's, it's time. Like he got to that point where he's like, I've had a full life. Um, I'm with the companion and you know, I'm ready to die. And then having him and presumably her too buried on Titan where this whole story really started, you know, especially like I love the kind of the epilogue or the, just the last few chapters of this book where each time period takes place on Titan. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, having him buried looking up at the stars that he always gazed up on mm-hmm. when he lived on Titan was just such a cool way to end it and um basically have finality to to his life for for humanity I guess cuz he had just disappeared they didn't know when he died and right and now there's this epic story for uh people to hear about Cochrane's life and I thought mm-hmm. you know it was just it was a very satisfying ending to his life I thought yeah I mean, I honestly just couldn't say better. I, I think the way that this story is written, it does create this wonderful arc for Cochrane, his entire life, uh, and the fact that he really gets to see the way in which his invention helps change the universe for humanity. Which, you know, one of the things in the book where um, Micah Brack and him are talking, who is his patron saint uh which is you know he's somebody who uh we we do connect him to the fact that he's actually flint uh, the character uh that we had met in the original series uh and that you know he is instrumental because he's in private industry and he's the one who finances cochran um which uh, did they realized that basically space travel was going to be privatized because they hit that on the head. Um, But he talks about this idea saying that war is always going to exist and that nothing can change humanity. And in this story, the ramifications of World War III and the millions that die in it are the things that kind of make the difference. For humanity to finally say no we have to do something different whereas first contact 
you know, gives us the idea of the introduction of the Vulcans, you know, and the fact that humanity realizes they're not alone. This is one of the places where maybe the book I don't know if is quite as good uh, as that story that we do get because it, I don't know if humanity, I mean, we've seen millions die before. I know 38 million died in, in World War Three, you know, uh, which is a ton of people, right? But, I mean, we've seen millions of people die on our planet and nothing's really changed us. Uh, I don't know if that's quite as a, a revolutionary a reason as what we get. So that may be the only place that I struggled in this book because it is different. Um, but it, it still made, it was still a really interesting conversation as to rat, as to how humanity would finally change and could it actually change? Like that question of is, is this just part of our nature? Is this always just going to be who we are or can we make, you know, a change? So, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I'm actually pretty torn on this uh, as far as which which uh, story, I guess, would uh, cause more change in humanity. I, I tend to have a pretty jaded view of humanity sometimes. I'm not the biggest fan of human beings a lot of times. Same. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I feel like um, I... I don't think that just like the Vulcans showing up and showing up, showing us that there's this bigger universe out there would necessarily do it alone, like make a change in humanity. I think, I think the way first contact does it where there's like world war three millions dead and now aliens are showing up and showing us that it doesn't have to be like that. I think that altogether might, um, and yeah, we have we've seen millions die through our own history, like our, our real life history. Um, I don't think I don't know that thirty eight million, in, you know, as they state, would be enough. I think we'd have to talk a couple billion people dying on Earth before people would kind of realize that maybe um, you know war or atomic war or anything uh, isn't worth it anymore. Um, this is one of those situations, though, where I feel like if we kind of combine the two stories, that's where I feel like we we get the difference. We, you know, have this horrific war. We're in this post-atomic horror, um, millions and millions dead, and then aliens show up to say, hey, it doesn't have to be like this, and we can show you how. I think um, that could give me more hope. <laughs> but, but yeah, this is one of those things, like, I don't think war alone is going to make us change. I don't think just aliens I, I i can guarantee that just aliens showing up today in some farm in or you know some some place in uh um in broken uh, montana bow. broken or broken or montana, bow or, yeah, yeah. Wherever. <laughs> i don't think that'll do it either so. yeah i i can i'm i'm right there with you um you know i i think because this question connects with who thorson is as um, somebody who is a part of the Optimum movement, connected with Colonel Green, um, very much responsible for, you know, the deaths that we see and the evil that's being done, um, you know, and, and the idea that the quote really becomes in this book 
the evil that men do lives after them. And the evil of Thorson continues to live on um, because the fact that he is, you know, he's thought dead um, through the actions of Cochrane and Brack. Uh, and um, yet he's able to survive. Uh, and he does that through these Gregari machines that give you life, but also eat your body away at the same time. And so it's it's like this half-life. And he ends up then, you know, living all the way to the 24th century. Um, and his desire still is to basically just try and remake the universe in his image. Um, and, you know, apparently to beware of Romulans bearing gifts. <laughs> so, um, but I... I in that connection with him, like, you know, his story is all about whether or not one can evolve, one can change, you know, and he is the character that represents humanity that refuses to change. Like he is a, he is the, the part of humanity that, that does refuse the call to change. And I think, that is really interesting because I think what Star Trek sometimes fails to do is to take into account that I don't know that everyone would, everyone in humanity would become as enlightened as what we see in all of the Federation. Um, I think in some ways, maybe some of the newer series have maybe gotten that more right, especially maybe Picard, where you do see this section of humanity that just isn't really into all of this stuff. Um, and they do kind of want to live in a way that human beings have before all of this quote-unquote enlightenment. And he kind of represents that, which... Um, you know, this whole book seems to be about the fact that we would transcend that and we would continue. The journey would continue. And it's a beautiful sentiment, but I don't know if I completely buy it. Yeah, I... I had a hard time with this guy. <laughs> he, I think the way he started out as kind of um, the foil for Cochrane was great. He reminded me a little bit of um, Guy Pierce's character in um, that Iron Man three that uh, he was in. He oh yeah, <laughs> yep. Where he's kind of uh, you know ignored and uh, shoved off and discarded kind of thing, and turns into the bad guy. Um, and I mean, the big, the big reason was, be and, and this was what showed Cochrane's true good side was that he knew that Thorson wanted to use warp technology for, for warfare. He wanted to, to weaponize it and Cochrane wasn't having it. And so, which is exactly what happened in Iron Man three, or was that two? Mm -hmm. No, that was three. Yeah. That was three. <laughs> And uh, the whole Gregari machines part, you know, I know it was a, a method to be able to get his character to span the centuries as well. That was that was the that was the tough sell for me because um, 
and the, and I think that they said it at one point, maybe in the 24th century stuff was, it was almost like they duplicated his mind. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even truly Thorson anymore. I think that it was more and right. Yeah. You know, that the machines that had taken over his body and the machines that he ended up in, it, it just wasn't even him anymore. It was, it was kind of a, sh- a shadow mm-hmm. of who he used to be. Um, I'm not sure that Thorson would have changed since, you know, even though he did kind of serve, like his body did survive, you know, in the 22nd century stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know that I think he, he might've stayed evil. And I, I think that he was, this character was more just the, what the story needed to kind of help tie all of this together. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, I feel like what they could have done was had even just some remnants of the optimum movement that he kind of started or was a part of live on just kind of in his name rather than actually being him. Um, Cause I just, I don't know that for 300 years, I don't know that. Right. You know, he would still be going after this warp bomb, you know, that, You'd think after, you know, combining with this preserver technology or whatever it was, or even just after 300 and some odd years that he would have come to realize, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's not actually possible. Like, they were telling me the truth. Right. And, but instead, he's just got this vendetta that spans centuries and just happens to um, follow along with Cochrane's journey through time as well. So... You know, I I love that line. The the evil that men do lives after them, um, which is a line from Shakespeare. And I I I like uh, how the uh, Andy Mangles and Michael Martin uh, called it the good that men do for <laughs> the the Enterprise book because I feel like just the same the the good that men do would live after them too. And and I feel like this the evil that men do lives after them is a perfect quote and the perfect reason to have a different character in each century moving on in the name of, of, uh, of Thorson, just like today we've got people who still revere Hitler or, you know, whoever yeah. in history. And I think that would have been maybe a little bit more poignant way to tell the story rather mm-hmm. than having this weird yeah. way for him to continue on. Well, and it's interesting because I think they try to do that a little bit with the way he uses the Romulans as pawns Mm. and that he's tapping into that same type of attitude that we saw in ourselves. Uh, And we, you know, we use, Star Trek has used these different alien races as a way to help us see ourselves. And so I feel like that's part of that but i definitely see i think that's a valid criticism of thorson as the character and it is it is something that's really interesting to me because of the idea you know you're 100 percent right the evil that men do definitely lives on after them and we see people picking up that same evil mantle and running with it and continuing to do so. And I think that's where those connections between the book and the themes are really nice because the idea of will humanity ever change? Will war end? And can we overcome that? You know, those are all the questions that we are asking ourselves. 
And I think that's that's where the the themes really I think come in pretty well. Um, and this is uh, you know we talked about this this book and the fact that it's connecting a lot of things in the universe. Um, so we're connecting the universe. We're we're explaining a lot of things. And I mean like uh, the insignia of the Enterprise. We actually learn where that scientifically comes from. Um, the reason behind the design of the enterprise too, why we have the two warp nacelles and the size of the saucer. Like they really went all out in connecting the universe here and, you know, helping us to learn from the time of world war three in the 22nd century, all the way there. Why, things are the way they are in the Star Trek universe and that it's not just about, oh, because it looks cool. You know, they were connecting it, quote unquote, scientifically, which it's kind of fun. Yeah. Well, and even when they found that artifact that had uh, the different symbols and everything on it, they explained it. I was Mm -hmm. fascinated reading that. Like, I didn't need to know what all of these hashes and lines and spaces meant in this little drawing that was in the book. But the thought that went into that for mm-hmm. fictional science, you know, like literal science fiction here uh, was amazing. And, you know, ha- yeah, like you said, having a reason for why the ships are shaped the way they are. The fact that Cochrane got to the bridge and saw the little uh, kind of the, the commemorative plaque on the bridge and the shape of the enterprise. And he knew exactly that he was on, uh, a ship that used his technology and expanding it into mm-hmm. the, you know, the canon of Star Trek. And we see what Vulcan ships look like and we see what Romulan ships look like and Klingons. And, and even in this book, it, it describes the different shapes of the ships and, you know, Cochrane even kind of thinking on why Klingon ships are designed the way they are. They're kind of flat so that, you know, when they're coming head on, it's less of a target to hit and everything. And just, you know, things that we might not have even thought about. And, you know, going back to, uh, you know, the Vulcans being kind of more on par with where our technology was when Cochrane um, kind of broke the warp barrier you know, makes me think like in the, in the regular canon, they've, they've got those kind of circular ships with the long bit that comes out the middle or whatever. And it's probably just cause it's based on a different type of technology mm-hmm. and, and how they construct yeah. it. So it's, it's, yeah, just a fun, you know, kind of, that's, that's the kind of really, uh, you know, geeky stuff that we get into and reading this stuff. Yeah. And it, 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 they make it make sense and it's fun that way. Yeah. I, just absolutely loved all of this. You know, I, I just thought it's so, it's just so well done and it's so fun. And, and I think, you know, in, in many ways, this is fan service at its best. And, you know, things that you didn't even necessarily know you wanted to know. And then they tell you and you're like, Oh, that's so cool. You know, I, I loved it. I really, really loved it. And so I thought that they just did a phenomenal job in, in, in crafting the story and making these connections in ways that, you know, we just didn't realize that we wanted to know that information. Um, so I thought it was great. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the big parts of this is obviously bringing 
the generations together. And so, you know, with the story we get for uh, in uh, the TOS time period, the story we get in the TNG time period, um, how how did this all work for you? Because in, in many respects, this is the crux of the story. Like, if this part doesn't work with, with these two parts of the story, of course, with Cochrane, then none of this is really going to work. And so... <laughs> Uh, how did how did you feel about it? This was really interesting. Um, I thought that they, just like with the rest of the book, kind of dealt with this these scenes with the deft hand, and they when they're all in the singular. You got Cochrane in his shuttle. You got the original and original series Enterprise, and then the Enterprise D. You know, we got some timey wimey things happening, and they're all aware of it and they kind of end up with this um um i can't remember the uh kind of the problem uh that they're in but basically like you know they have to make a plan without being able to talk to the other ship and Mm -hmm. um they even refer to prisoner's dilemma yeah yeah and they even referred to the the maneuver that they did uh, as a handshake across time which i thought was very poetic in how they said that, but yes. um, but that's totally what it felt like. You've got captains uh, from two different eras, you know, centuries apart from each, well, a century apart from each other that both believe in the same thing. Um, Kirk even says, you know, the Federation isn't a person, it's a tradition, it's an ideal. And Picard, even in the very next scene, shares that exact same sentiment with his crew that you know, they've, they could very easily just try to like kind of break all the time rules and try to talk to each other and uh, figure this out. But at at the same time, Mm -hmm. they also know that they both believe in the same things. And so that's how they know that this dilemma will end up working in their favor. You know, they can, um, they can make it work and uh, do this handshake across time. And I thought that it just, it worked out so well. Almost just felt like they, you know, as they were kind of being spun out 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 from the uh, singularity, that they would have just kind of waved at each other as they went by or something. Uh, it just, um, I don't know. It it felt like the right scene written the right way. Mm-hmm. I think that the work that they do in TOS, bringing all of this together with all of the work that they do to mine that series and then doing the exact same thing for TNG. I mean, the intricacy of the work and the storytelling here on both sides is phenomenal. And like you said, then when you get to that scene, it all comes together in a way that truly makes sense that these are men that are relying on the traditions and beliefs and ideals of the Federation to which each other holds to so they can save everyone. And it's just fantastic. I mean, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I just like everything you said, I was like, yes, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's just so good. And then the fact that Kirk writes Picard an actual letter on paper to explain the situation to him so that he will understand exactly what happened 
really, really made sense. Um, and really, really, uh, it was even more poignant because generations had happened by this point. And so they had actually met each other. And so for then Picard to have this letter from this man who he actually got the chance to meet, writing him a letter before they met properly, uh, and then having that to be able to hold on to for the rest of his life is just a really, really cool thing. And what is so beautiful is the idea that this book ends with Kirk at the Guardian because it began with him at the Guardian and the Guardian gave him a picture and the understanding of everything that had happened which then allows him to be able to tell the story in some ways. It's it's kind of weird timey-wimey thing, but I felt like even though Kirk goes to the Guardian after he's retired, it still felt like his letter enabled him to be able to tell most of the story. Like, you, does that make sense? Like, I got the feeling like almost like it was retroactive or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that reading, but it, it did feel like that's almost what they were trying to say. Yeah. Like I, it was funny as I'd totally forgotten that this story even started at the guardian. And so when, yeah. when that Vulcan, um, had told Picard, Oh, she met Kirk. I was like, what? That's so random. And then we get the scene at the end with the guardian. I was like, Oh, that's right. She was mm-hmm. the one from the beginning yep. too. So, I I thought that that worked very well because yeah I think you're absolutely absolutely right that um you know Kirk had his side of the story he could have just said like hey future captain of the Enterprise here's what was going on in my ship and you know with my crew and here's here's my story of what would happen or what had happened so I just wanted to let you know that thanks for saving our lives because you know here's what happened, but having the guardian just show him even just these glimpses, uh, you know, that, you know, he even says they're kind of fleeting um, images of Picard and everything. He just, I think it allowed him to put more heart into his story because there's actually a ghost of a face in his, in his brain about who he's writing to. He knows it's a real person. He, you know, he saw a fuzzy image of the Enterprise D, but he just, mm-hmm. you know, he more than being able to write a letter to some future generation, he now, because of the Guardian, has a solid person, I guess, behind there that he can um, really write the letter to rather than just this kind of ambiguous so-and-so captain you know so i I thought that was really cool and and just for kirk to be able to to get that even for his own closure because he's he's about to go give someone the full story that he didn't even have himself you know only somebody from the future would and so the guardian kind of just gave him that little just that little thing that nothing to to ruin the timeline or anything but just enough to be able to say hey you have the whole story now too yeah Um, it just, it just felt really, it just felt really interesting, um, because then I, I, you know, I don't know if it necessarily impacts his letter, but it does, 
impact. It does, it does create an interesting read then for generations. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so I just I really appreciated that, um, and I really liked that. And then you know, the one of the last parts of the book we have is the distant future, where you know you've got the Milky Way galaxy that's united into a galaxy-wide federation, and then they're stepping through a gateway into another galaxy through a preserver artifact. And, you know, it, it, this whole thing is about this idea, you know, of that the journey continues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this book is about the Titans that helped that happen, right? Cochrane, Kirk, and Picard. And I thought that that was a beautiful way to, to, to have as one of the last things you read because it really does bring everything kind of full circle. Yeah. It shows that even in the future, the Federation will live on because it's traditions, it's ideals, and it'll evolve with, you know, it's not just humans, even it's, it's everybody. Um, and I, I really loved that, uh, the captain of this ship even had the realization of, you know, even, you know, even though they've, they've united the entire galaxy, they're still off to go where no one has gone before. And that the adventure is mm -hmm. just beginning, which was kind of the, Star Trek, the motion picture, you know, the human adventure is just beginning and that's kind of, but now it's the, the Federation adventure is still just beginning. There's still so much more left to explore yep. and do. So that was, yeah, it was really great. Yeah. Well, I, I'm kind of fascinated to see where we end up with the ratings for this book since, you know, there was really only one part of the story that kind of maybe could be a hiccup for us. So where are you, Casey, with your rating of Federation? I, um, yeah, I, I was debating, should this be a four and a half, but no, I, I feel like this is a, a five star novel, um, five stars on the, uh, United Federation of Planets flag. It's, you know, I don't know what else there is to say about it. it. It's just, it was really fun. And even, even the parts that didn't work with our established canon or canon that was established after this book, it was fine. You know, like the, I didn't, I didn't need it to, it didn't ruin it for me that it didn't really work with Enterprise or First Contact or anything like that. This was just a fun story. Um, you know, I don't feel the need to headcanon too much of it. You know, it's just... This is one that I could imagine. This was my first time reading it, and I can imagine reading it again uh, sometime. And I know for you, this was your uh, second time reading it, right? Did it hold up for you like it did before? It's it's so interesting because I feel like this is probably one of the first Star Trek books that I read. Um, you know, when I really got into Star Trek, it was in the heyday of all of the big hardcovers coming out, and uh, I didn't. I didn't have any expectation going back into this of, of, as to what it would be for me and whether it would hold up. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that this may be one of the best Star Trek books ever written. And I don't care that it doesn't fit with established canon. The story is so good that it overcomes any minor deficits. And so, yes, this is five out of five destroyed companion planets. Um, so, I mean, it's just, it's so good. 
Uh, and I could absolutely see myself, you know, reading this again. I, I'm actually uh, contemplating getting a copy of it in hardcover uh, just just to have on the shelf because it's it's one of those books that just deserves to be on the shelf. And so it's 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 excellent. So, you know, for a 350th episode of Literary Treks, I'm very glad that we decided to do this one because I think it was, it's it's a worthy it's a worthy book for that that number of episode. Well, yeah, 350 episodes are in the bag. 350 more to go and I don't know what kind of prize we get, but uh you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh even the next 10 episodes, the next year's worth, I don't know. I feel like we've, you know, we've got some new Star Trek books coming up and we've got some old ones to read too, so I'm excited to see where we go. You know, I am too. Uh, I do know we're going to be finishing the New Earth series coming up. Uh, so we'll uh, be in book six with Challenger. And uh, then, of course, uh, we're looking forward to Una's new book as well. And then we've got some plans for kind of wrapping up the year. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but Casey, if people wanted to see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you? Yeah, I am most active on Goodreads and Letterboxd, but I also have a, a lurking presence on Twitter and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie at all those places. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook and the Babel Conference, and you can also find me doing a little podcast called Mickey's Marvels, a uh, Disney podcast that covers everything under the Disney umbrella, including Star Wars, Marvel, National Geographic, what have you. Lots of fun. Where can people find you, Matthew, when you're not uh when you're not spanning the centuries? <laughs> <laughs> well when that's not happening, uh you can also find me on social media, uh which is also uh hopefully not gonna be spanning the centuries. Uh Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. I am here, of course, on the network in our side of the network that doesn't have anything to do with Star Trek, called the 602 Club, where we cover all of the fandoms we love, not just one. And, of course, you can find me on The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, as well as Warp 5 talking about Star Trek Enterprise, The Artificial Tango talking about Star Trek Picard, and... Saddle up, talking about strange new worlds. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I've got a completed show I did with Drea Kaufman called Owlpost, and we talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And you can also find me doing aggressive negotiations with the Star Wars podcast with John Mills. But as always, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.